All right. Thank you, Pastor Gabe, for the best announcements ever. I think, yeah, I think they perfect. They were perfect. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are, whenever you're catching us. You guys here in-house, I love this. Thank you for coming out. Um, I love to see all the new faces, some, some new old friends, some, some people that haven't been here for a while. Life, isn't it funny how quickly life can get away from us? Like it seems like it was just last week when I was at church or last week when I saw this friend and all of a sudden before you know it, it's like it's been months and months and life just gets away. Who's ready for a, a, a reset in 2021? Who was disappointed that when you went to bed on, on New Year's Eve and you woke up the next day, life pretty much looked the same as it did the day before? Right? When we put our hope in the fact that the calendar flipped to where all of a sudden our life is going to change, so many times we're sorely disappointed. But I go into this, I, I, I say Happy New Year to people, I'm excited about a new year, and not so much that just it's a calendar flip, because it's going to take me until April before I start writing 2021 on my checks. It, it, I'm just telling you, it's going to take that long. But some of you are like, you still write checks? That's so old school. But here's why. Here's why. It's a reason for me to mentally think about a reset, okay? And by reset, here's what I mean specifically by that, shedding baggage. It seems like 2020 has been a year, every bad news story I hear, every bad political or social or economic thing that happens, every friend who has a business closed down, every person who gets sick or, or has passed away because of this disease, every one of those things is just a little bit of baggage, that I just take on, and it just piles up on my shoulders. Anybody else do that? And it feels like all of a sudden you're just kind of slogging around like your feet are in mud or encased in concrete, and it's just I'm moving forward and I'm still standing, but just barely. Everything seems so much harder. And then I come to realize when I think about it, all those things, the vast majority of them, let's say, that I have piled onto my shoulders and allowed them to weigh me down, to, to suck the joy out of life and to just make things difficult are things that don't belong there. They're things I should never have been carrying to begin with, but for some reason I just say, sure, doom and gloom from somewhere I've never been and a person I ne will never meet, just go ahead and pile it on my shoulders. I'll take it. And I think so many of us unknowingly, we just kind of do that especially those with a gift of, uh, of empathy or compassion for people, you, those things matter, and they matter to me. But we take on that baggage, and all of a sudden we just know that just everything seems just hard and joyless. That's why I'm looking forward to a reset. Anybody with me? So, yes, yeah, so in the, in the spirit of a reset, let's jump back into Job, a series that we were teaching two months ago. A whole year ago, I think, Job, for those of you who haven't been with us, and I love visitors, if you're out there online and it's the first time, I love that. But there are people who have been going to our, to our church for a month and a half now, and they're like, I haven't heard anything about Job. I'm going to jump back into Job. We're going through the whole book 
of Job. And some of you are like, Ugh, seriously, because 2020 and the whole thing just felt like the year of Job, did it not? <laughs> but here's why I think it's important. Here's why, and I'm going to do a little bit of a recap to get everybody up to speed and so, so that we can all kind of move forward in the right direction. Job is a book, if you just look at it on the surface, it looks about pain and suffering. Pain and suffering and maybe perseverance through a trial, the patience of Job and all these things that we've kind of thrown out over the years. And most of us have just said, that's all I need to know about the book of Job. I don't really want to even look more closely at that. Because the more closely you look, the more you see some of the horrific things that Job went through. Things that you would never, you wouldn't wish them on your absolute worst enemy. And yet he went through them. So you start asking yourself, or at least I do, why is it even in Scripture? Do we really need to be reminded that bad things happen? We know that. That's pretty much what life is in general, is a series, it seems like sometimes, of one thing after another. Here's why it's there. Because God can use those things. If we allow him, he will use all of those bad things that come our way, the life trials, everything that comes towards us. He will use that for our good. Scripture promises us that. But we know even more than that. If we're in a comfort place, if we're in a comfort zone, you're in your living room on your easy chair, you got your drinks and your food and you're watching TV and your favorite show, there's no reason for you to get up and move. There's no reason for you to go and do something else outside of your comfort zone. Certainly not something that would be uncomfortable. But it's through that discomfort that we grow. It's through that time of discomfort that God uses to bring us to a place of more reliance on him. A place where we understand, I don't have the answer to what's going on. And I never will. But I know who does. And if I rely on him, he will pull me, sometimes kicking and screaming, into what he has. And we would never elevate ourselves into that place that God wants for us if we were just allowed to be down here. We talk about Job. book of Job opens up, and it talks about Job. As a, as a, our series is called Blameless. Scripture describes him that way. God describes Job that way. He's blameless. He's a good guy. He gets up in the morning. He works hard. He has plenty of friends. He's got a good, honest business. He's got children, grandchildren. He's got, he's got everything that you could possibly need. And in one moment, it's taken away. When I say one moment, literally in one day, one bang after another, all those things are taken away. And it's left for Job to try and reconcile why this happened to him. And this is the struggle of the entire book of Job. That's why it's pertinent to us. Because we'll never have the answers of why things happen to us. We can try. Sometimes we see things that kind of make sense. Anybody ever see a news story that seemingly seems random about, let's say, a random drive-by shooting or a house that gets broken into or a car accident or, or a sickness or something Something terrible happens. What do we try and do? We want to fill in the blanks so that it makes sense to us. And if we can make sense, okay, our neighbor's house got broken into. It's only two houses down. 
but they always leave their garage door open. I wouldn't do that. Or they always advertise with their shiny new car out front, and that makes them a target. I wouldn't do that. Whatever it is, we always want to try and make sense so that we can say, but that wouldn't happen to me, especially with those things that seem random. And so we're at this place in the book of Job where his friends, now he's, he's made some good friends, business associates, over time, and they want to come. They, Job has gone through some bad things. Our friend needs us. Let's get together and let's go comfort him. And that's what they come together. Seemingly, that's what they come together to do. But the problem is human nature takes over with them too. And they have to make sense of what Job's going through. So they look at Job. Okay, we thought Job was a good guy. He was a stand-up guy, living the right life, praying for his kids, doing everything right. And yet all this terrible stuff happened to him. So in our human nature, we have to make sense of that. Because if we can't reconcile why that happened to the best guy that we know, then it can happen to us too. So we have to be able to find out a reason why it happened to Job. And this is exactly where we're at. These guys, one friend after another, they come and they just hammer away at Job with their, with their words. Trying to get Job to fess up to something that isn't there. They have to, in their very core of their being, they have to prove that Job has some hidden dark sin somewhere. Because if they can't, they have to look at themselves. And that's not always fun. People rarely want to do that. So let's jump into this. Last time we checked in on Job, we just we saw this relentless attack through all of these. He's got three friends that come to visit him. There's Eliphaz, there's Bildad. And there's this new friend, <coughs> excuse me, this new friend called Zophar that we're going to talk about today. But they've been there, and, and they've, again, each one of them has been exhorting him to, come on, just, just fess up. If you just fess up to what you did, God will take away all this pain that you're going through. And essentially, they come down and say, hey, God rewards the good and punishes sin. That's basically the angle that the, all three of them are coming at it. And it Sounds okay on the surface, right? God rewards the good and punishes sin. It sounds pretty straightforward, but it's missing so many elements that would make that statement wisdom and, more importantly, applicable to his life. We are so quick to dispense all the knowledge that we have, our vast wisdom, to anybody that's suffering or anybody that has an opinion or anything they see I'll see a politician on television say or do something. No matter where you fall on the spectrum, we all have our list of the, of the few good ones and the few probably bigger list of bad ones, right? We all have that. And I all want to, I all, I'll just point at me. I like to look at that and I see somebody that's on my naughty list of politicians. I see them do something, say something, vote a certain way, and I immediately want to ascribe to them all the attributes that I would think. Well, they did that because they're evil, they're wrong, they don't know God. They, I would have all my list, and I don't know if any of that's true. But I'll happily tell anybody who asks me that's why they did it. I'll dispense all the wisdom 
on all that stuff. None of it's based in anything that I personally know. It's just what I think I've heard. This is kind of where Job's friends are coming at it. So as we start out at this place. The first, I'll jump back two chapters and just give you kind of this one scripture. This is our first one. Job chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. They're, they're telling Job, hey, God rewards the good, punishes the bad. And he answers with this. Then Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? He's saying, I, I know that that's a fact. I, I agree with that. But how can I be in the right before God? Because what I thought I knew, I thought I was doing everything right, and yet somehow what I'm seeing in front of me does not line up with that picture. He's trying to reconcile what he knows in his mind with what he sees happening to him. And it's a struggle that they all are going through, um, all of his friends. So this week we're going to go into his friends so far. Now remember, each one... Each one of his friends is progressively trying to convince Job to go ahead and just fess up. Take that sin out of the closet, wherever you've been hiding it, drag it out here into the open. We can all point at it and point at you, and then we'll be good. Your sin's out in the open. We can repent and walk away. They're trying to get him to a place of repentance just by beating him with words. All that does is make guilt and confusion. We see through Scripture that that he is very confused. But he's certainly not repentant because what do I have to repent of? He knows his own heart. So they're all coming at it from this different angle. Now, I'm going to teach you a few Greek words and a couple um, theological, really smart-sounding words. The first one is theodicy. Theodicy. Now, if you wonder what is a theodicy, if you've been coming for a while, you know what a theodicy is. But let me review really quick. If a friend came to you and asked you, can you explain to me why bad things happen to good people? Why there's pain and suffering in the world? Why would a good God allow pain and suffering? However you want to word it, if a friend came to you and asked you that question, how would you answer it? How would you answer that question? However you answer that question, that's your theodicy. It's how we reconcile the answer to that question. So with that in mind, let's go in and let's see where Zophar is coming out. As a quick reminder, his first friend, Eliphaz the Temanite. Okay, that's the first of his friends. And Eliphaz is his name. Temanite is where is the area, the region that he's from, Teman. He claims... His, his personal uh, opinion of himself, he claims to be an authority on history and ancient wisdom. In other words, he can rely back on, well, throughout history, we've seen this happen, and that's why it's happening to you. Or, I know wisdom, I'm an expert on wisdom, just ask me, this is why this happens to you. And his theodicy basically is that um, your free will and the choices you've made is what has led you to this place of pain and suffering when he's talking to Job. So he looks at Job and he says, hey, you're suffering, you're in pain, you've gone through all these things, therefore, you've done something bad. Pretty straightforward as far as how he looks at it, right? He blames just basically human nature for this evil and this bad stuff that's happened to him. Now, second friend, Bildad, Bildad the Shuhite, he is more of a, of a philosopher kind of comes at things sort of philosophically, but he also 
um, just takes these catchphrases, these tried and true catchphrases, and just kind of pummels Job with them, trying to hope, again, something is going to stick. And he's a little bit more forceful, whereas Eliphaz kind of came at it like, hey, uh, Job, my good buddy, I see that you're going through some stuff. Let's work through this. He starts out that way. And then eventually when he sees that Job isn't going to fess up, he starts getting a little more forceful. Now, Bildad comes in. Bildad sees that that approach didn't work, so he's a little bit more direct. He's a lot more direct. And his theodicy is that God is using this evil in your life, this this suffering that you're going through, as a wake-up call to call you back to him. That still, it's a result of your mistakes, your sin, but... Good news, God's using that to call you to repentance and and back to him. Not entirely wrong, again, but lacking the full picture. So that brings us to the third friend, the one we're going to talk about today, and his name is Zophar. And I think we have a picture of Zophar up here. Wait, no, it's Zophar, not Zoltar. Zophar, okay, you can take that down. That's not him. Anybody know where that's from? Big, right? And if you've been on boardwalks or carnivals, old school, you see those around, right? They dispense wisdom. You put money in, and they'll, they'll give you a card, kind of like a fortune cookie, right? So even though that's not Zophar, the wisdom that this guy dispenses is just about as accurate and helpful as what we see Zophar doing. We're going to talk about that. Zophar the Namathite. And Namathite, that's where he's from now. Namath, Namath, any of those places, not really mentioned in the Bible very much. You could go back in Joshua 15. It talks about an area called Nama. Uh, and maybe that's where it's from. It's in Judah, so it could be. But that's where his name comes from. His name now, in Hebrew, names are typically a picture. Names kind of uh, are a picture of your character or a picture of where you're from or something that's kind of descriptive rather than just, we'll call him Steve. It it means something typically. But in this case, it could mean one of two things. It either means, Zophar either means Harry, not not as in Harold, but Harry. Could be that. Or it could also mean pleasant abode, meaning, you know, uh, where he lives from. Or it could be a hairy guy from Pleasantville. It could be any of that. The reason I tell you this is because even though words have meaning, sometimes in translation, it can get lost. So in this case, it's not terribly. Let's call him a hairy guy from Pleasantville and move on. We don't know really much else about him. He's the younger of the three guys that come in to talk to uh, to talk to Job. We know that because the tradition would have been the oldest speaks first and then it goes down to the, to the youngest. So he's probably the youngest of the three there. He is an expert, self-proclaimed expert on what God will do and why he will do it. He'll tell you, God does this because of this, but it's not based on prayer. It's not based on anything that he has personally learned. It's just conventional wisdom, we would call it. He's just kind of the every guy. He's not super educated in, in theological matters or anything like that. He's just, he just, conventional wisdom says this is why that's happening, ha, is happening to you. But 
he really, really comes at Job. Now, this is by far the least delicate of all of Job's friends, and he jumps right in, just goes straight to the attack because he's seen Eliphaz didn't have any effect, Bildad didn't have any effect, and now here we are. It's his turn. It's his turn at the plate, and he's got to take a crack at Job, but it's getting desperate. They really, all three of these guys, have to be able to get Job to fess up to whatever he's doing because in their minds, they know they know Job. They've seen him. They've had business dealings with him, and they don't see any reason why God would do this to him. And yet it's happening. They've got to make sense of it. They are desperate to make sense of this. So here we go. It's, it's Eliphaz's turn. Now, there's no fresh or open-minded thinking. There's no prayerful discussion here. It's just delivering the party line. This is what we've decided we're going to stay we're going to say and I'm going to say it and I'm going to say it more forcefully and louder than the other guys hopefully ho- hopefully that will stick. How many of you have ever met somebody that they they just think that the more volume the more forcefully and the more passionately they state their point the more it will make sense to you. I myself my method of arguing used to be we're going to go into this room and I'm going to talk at you until you see my point. And nobody leaves this room until we all agree. And it never worked. It never worked. But this is where Zophar is right or wrong. This is my mountain, and I'm dying on it because I have to prove this. So he's not straying from what other guys have said. He's just saying it differently. Those who forcefully proclaim what God thinks. And I don't mean passionately. I mean forcefully, and in some cases not in a pretty way. They're often just using that passion and that tone to convince you. Or in some cases to make you feel guilty. Well, guilty is not conviction. We're going to talk extensively about the difference there in just a little bit. If you have that quiet confidence in knowing what you say is truth, Think of Jesus. Bless you. Jesus didn't yell at anybody. In fact, just the opposite. Most often he was very quiet and very calm. And it was that calmness, that calm, assured nature that drew people to the word. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. It's got nothing to do with volume or passion. So this is where we are. Now, the problem that all three of these guys share, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, The problem that they all share with their theology or their theodicy is that none of them, none of them can grasp the concept of undeserved suffering. They have no basis in reality or no no precedent in their history of undeserved suffering any more than they have for undeserved grace. Undeserved grace and mercy are just as foreign a concept. Theirs is a simple equation. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. It's very simple, very straightforward for them, and that's as far as it goes. The idea that you could be a sinner and still receive God's blessings was something they had no context for, and in fact, it would be thousands of years until Jesus Christ before we could even begin to understand the idea of undeserved grace. 
And for many, it's still a confusing issue today. So listen, normally I'll go through and I'll go idea by idea or scripture by scripture through and I'll, and I'll read it and we'll dissect it. I'm going to read this entire chapter to you. And we're going to talk about it as we go through. Um, it's Job chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. I use the New American Standard. If you have that and you want to follow along, you can. If you have a different version, follow along in a different version. It'll probably be worded a little bit differently. But I just want you to listen and hear this attack that's going on from a, a well-meaning friend, but one with very much an agenda. All right, Job 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boasts silence men and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes, but that God might speak and open his lips against you. He's basically admitting there that he doesn't have the words. I don't have the words to speak, but if God were here, he would know exactly what to say to you. Verse 6, and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Let me explain that really quick, because that's a whole lot more cold-blooded than it sounds on the surface. Some translations literally say, your punishment is less than you deserve. So he's already lo he's lost his children his homes, his servants, his, his animals, his livestock, his livelihood, all these things have lost. He's in pain, suffering, boils, illness. He, he's in a terrible state of mind. And his good buddy Zophar is saying, hey, it could be worse. Because God's, God's not even holding everything against you that he could. That's supposed to make him feel better, I guess. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 7, starting. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. I want to pause there again really quick. That's verse 12. What he's saying is a donkey has a better chance of becoming a man than an idiot, meaning Job, of suddenly becoming enlightened. That is cold-blooded. And so far, as just, he just continues going at it. But... He says this, if you would only repent, you'd have no reason to fear God. So again, back to just, you need to repent. Uh, verse 13, if you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. For you would forget your trouble as waters that have passed by you would remember it. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust because there's hope. And you would look around and rest securely. You would lie down and none would disturb you. And many would entreat your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and there will be no escape for them. And their hope is to breathe their last. 
He's telling Job, if you would only repent, you would be fine. You would be calm. You would, people go back to where people would hold you in esteem. But where you are right now, you'd just be better off dead. Like Zophar, or Zophar like Eliphaz and Bildad, they're not entirely wrong. What they say to him is not entirely false, but it lacks a depth of understanding necessary to make it wisdom that would actually apply to his life. Side note, those Facebook posts that say cut and paste, have your own thoughts, please. (laughs) If you want to take some of that wisdom and rephrase it, I want to hear your heart. Not what somebody disconnected 15 people ago said and you thought, eh, that sounds good. That's basically what these guys are doing. It lacks context. It's not entirely false, but it lacks the context. And words delivered without context and wisdom will not, hear me, will not lead to repentance. Because you need to be convicted. They might lead to guilt, It could very easily lead to guilt, but it's the force behind him that makes a difference. Like Zoltar at the carnival game, fortune cookies, and conventional wisdom. It's all hit and miss. It might be so broad that it could, who's ever had a fortune cookie and gone, that is spot on. (laughs) I have, and they usually are worded like this, the sun shall rise tomorrow. (laughs) That's awesome. How did he know that? That kind of conventional wisdom is not what's going to lead to repentance. And that's important. We know that Zophar's speech entirely missed the mark. And the reason we know that is because later on in the book of Job, not today, but as we go through, we'll find out that God charges Zophar with with sin. Now, what you see him saying there, there's nothing terribly sinful, but he missed the mark. He sinned because he didn't seek God's heart and fresh wisdom. He's just spewing the same things that he's heard, copy and pasting down the line. We see that they create no conviction, no repentance, and no life change for Job. And we know that because of Job's response, which we'll talk about next week when we see Job's response to all this. But here's the difference. God's word will create conviction. And that conviction will create repentance. And with that, it will lead to righteousness. But we have a part to play in that. We have to let it. And we have to listen to it. It's not enough just to hear it. We have to apply it. But let's talk about, let's talk about conviction because that's what's lacking. What Zophar is charged by, by God with sin because he was lacking that, that power and that depth in his words because he's just repeating what he heard. If it came from God, if it was God's word, God's heart being relayed, it would create conviction. So let's talk about conviction. This is why it's so important. It's more than a feeling. It's more than guilt. Show of hands, has guilt ever made a life change for you? Long term. Long term. Mostly, it doesn't. It might create a change that day, 
or for however long we can sustain that, like, oh, I feel guilty, man. I ate so many sweets over the holidays. I shouldn't have any more cookies. But those look really good. Maybe just one more cookie. But I'm going to feel bad about it. That's what guilt does. Conviction, though, conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, and that's deeper. And conviction will change your life if you let it. So, most of us feel guilty about doing things that we know we shouldn't have done. That extra handful of cookies, watching a TV show that you know is not good for you, maybe skipping church to watch a football game. That's an example of guilt. And that might make you feel bad about doing it, but you're going to do it anyway. Conviction goes far beyond that feeling. Feelings are possible. Anyone can have feelings, and any feeling can be manipulated. Conviction, true conviction is only possible through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's where true conviction comes from. Jesus himself said this. We're going to jump into some New Testament scripture here. John 16, verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Who's the he? The he is the Holy Spirit. It actually translates as a Greek word, parakletos, if you, if you look at a translation. And it means a helper, an advocate, an intercessor. That's the Holy Spirit he's talking about there. The Holy Spirit will do that. The word convict, will you convict the world concerning sin? That's another Greek word, elencho, and it means to convince someone of the truth. So it's the Holy Spirit will show you the truth. Doesn't matter what source you get for your news, if it's not the Holy Spirit, it is subject to manipulation, and it may or may not be truth. And that conviction... That conviction that we get through the Holy Spirit, through which we can see truth, only will do its work if we allow it. We can hear it, we can know it, and we can ignore it. I've done that. I'm just telling you, I've done that. I've known what the truth is, and I've chosen to not look at it because it was hard. Here's another scripture that talks to us about the importance of that. Again, this is, this is the words of Jesus as, as recorded by John. John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Straightening up, a lot of us know this story. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now, this is the woman who was, who was being stoned. She had clearly sinned in her life, and the crowd was going to stone her to death. And Jesus intervened. But he doesn't just say, hey, I'm just going to wink at that, and you can just go on your way. He says, go, but sin no more. And that conviction comes from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit for us. That is what will change a life. Not an angry crowd with stones. It could end a life. It's not going to change it. Jesus left his Holy Spirit with us to be our guide, to guide us into that conviction, which then will have a chance at becoming repentance if we let it. 
Jesus' ministry, oftentimes we see it called a ministry of reconciliation. Anybody ever heard it called that? A ministry of reconciliation. Here's what that means. Let me read it to you. This is from 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read you a few scriptures from 2 Corinthians, and I'll give you some context here in just a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. A lot of us have heard that, right? Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There can be no, the bottom line to that is there can be no reconciliation without first repentance. There has to be, and there can't be repentance without conviction. Conviction comes first. Knowing this, if we know this, if we take that as fact, why do we so often resist being convicted? So you don't, because repentance is hard. Repentance is hard. So many of us, uh, and we probably don't actively say, I don't want to be convicted. But what do we say? Don't go there. That's what we say. I know I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't be watching that. But it's my guilty pleasure. It's the equivalent of just saying, hey, I know I've got monsters in my closet. Just don't look in there. We have stuff under our bed and in our closets and all the dark places in our life, and we know it's there, but we don't want to look at it too hard because as soon as we acknowledge it, we have to repent of it. And that Holy Spirit is going to keep poking away at you until you do. It's rarely comfortable because its goal, the goal of conviction is to cause repentance, which is to cause a change in behavior. Most of us are really happy just staying in that rut that we're in and that behavior, even if we know it's not entirely good for us. It's more comfortable. Let me read you another scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Corinthians. He wrote two letters to them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Very clever name for first and second letters. Let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, okay, he's referring to the first letter, 1 Corinthians. Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see now that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world, another name for that, is guilt. Guilt just produces death. It causes us, at best, it causes us to do the right thing, for the wrong reasons. At worst, it just causes us to hide that a little farther away so no one else can see it. A side note about that, this is interesting. 
I hope you find it interesting. First and second Corinthians, the first two letters. First Corinthians, Paul is again writing to the church in Corinth, but it's all about correction. They, they know what's right, but they've strayed from that, and it's all about correcting them. Get back on the path. You know what's right. You know what you should be doing. Get back on the right path. First Corinthians is all about that. Second Corinthians, the second letter, now that they have done that and they have repented and they've seen the error of their ways, Second Corinthians is all about, let's go deep now. It's all about moving forward in their calling and the power they can be as a body, as the church. It's all about hope and moving forward. But you can't have that if you're still in a place where you need to repent. You can't move. How that translates to us is you can't move forward into the calling and the greatness and the hope that God has for your life if you're unrepentant about things that you know are there. And if you don't know they're there, maybe you should ask. Because we know someone, and it's not me, and it's not the person next to you, The Holy Spirit can point those out to us. We can shed that baggage and then step into into what God has for us. If you feel like your calling in God is just like your feet are stuck in concrete, I know he's got a calling for me. I know there's so much more, but I just don't feel like I'm going anywhere. Maybe you've got that weight, that baggage of unrepentant sin in your life that you're not willing to look at. Or if you know it's there, you're not willing to let go. This is where we are. And you can't be fully reconciled to God if you're holding on to that. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and even Job understood that concept, but they just couldn't grasp the solution. They didn't have the solution. Jesus is the solution. Again, two more scriptures for you. First John eight, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. We have that up on screen. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Not just for individuals, though. I have heard so much, and I've prayed this prayer too. God, heal our land. It's from, it's from Chronicles. God, heal our land. So it's corporate as well. Second Chronicles 7, 14. Again, we have that. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away, repent of their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. Our sin is forgiven every single time we ask. Every time. There is never a time when you can ask Jesus to forgive me of my sin, and he says, mm, no. You've asked me to forgive that sin five times already this week. I've had enough. Never. Never. But we have to repent of it as well. We can't just say, forgive me, and continue to walk in that. And when we do, he promises, I will hear and I will hear not, heal not only your land, but I will heal you and your relationship with him. And that's what I want. Worship team, you guys can start getting ready. So as we enter a new year, as we enter this new time, it's got nothing to do with the number on the calendar, but I want to enter this new season without carrying the baggage that I've been carrying with me. Anybody else? 
We want to just take as long a hot a shower as we have to to wash off the baggage from last year. For me, it's the baggage of self-righteousness and of prideful arrogance. I'm going to admit to you that right now. I don't feel that I'm arrogant about the Word of God and what I say about the Word of God because I study that with all my heart and soul. I'm talking about political and social and economic things. Just ask me. I have all of the sum total of the world's wisdom contained in my head. And if you ask me, I will tell you. Show me a meme, a Facebook post, or a news story. I only need to read two lines, and I will tell you what the real truth is. Just ask me. I want to repent of that because there's too much of that going on out there, and it's causing division and hate and strife and arguing and everything that the body of Christ should not be. So that's what I'm going to repent of, and that's the baggage that I'm going to offload. What do you want to offload? What's in the closet or under the bed that you don't want someone else to see? What are you hanging on to? You know it's there. You know it shouldn't be there. But you don't want to go there. Don't want to look at it too closely because then you'll have to change. I want to invite you now to just join me in the prayer. A prayer of repentance. First of all, the prayer is, Lord, convict my heart. Show me those things. Maybe you know what they are. But many of us don't know because we haven't looked, because we don't want to look. So you can pray that prayer with me. We have prayer team in the back that can pray with you. If you need prayer for that reason or for any other, they'd be happy to pray with you. If you're online now, you can use the chat boards. You can email us, prayer at discovercommunity.church, and we'll pray with you for those things. If you have some baggage that you want to offload, you can pin it to the cross. We have note cards and pins at each one of these crosses. You can write that, that sin, that baggage, that fear, whatever it is, and just pin it to the cross. And we'll pray over it if it's a prayer request, and we, will, and we will destroy it for you because the cross is where those things belong. The more you want to carry that baggage, the more you're going to be weighed down, and you're not going to be fit for what God truly has for you. So that's what I want. Would you join me in that prayer? Father God, I just ask, Lord, for those of us, myself included, who have not sought your heart to show us those things that are in our lives that don't belong there, those dark places that we're tucking away things that maybe we haven't even bothered to look, maybe we don't even want to know. Lord, show us those things and show us how they're holding us back from the fullness of what you have for us. Because you wiped our slate clean through the blood of Jesus on the cross and yet we continue to pile things back on ourselves. It doesn't belong there. And Lord, so show us those things. Show us with clarity those things that need to be gone from our lives. And Lord, then we go the further step, we will repent and we will turn away from those things because we want you and all of you. We don't want anything to stand in the way of relationship with you because that's where the fullness of life comes from. Not through the dark and hidden things, 
It comes from being free of those. And it's not a multitude of words. If we are to use words to justify ourselves, let it be declaring the righteousness of Jesus. Let that be the reflection that people see when they look at us, not through anything that we do. Father, we praise you. We praise you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to... uh, celebrate communion together. If you're in-house here and you didn't grab one on the way in, at the table by the back door are little single-serve communion cups. If you'd like to share communion with us, uh, grab those. If you're at home, grab whatever you have. The elements are not important. What they are, it could be grape juice and and a wafer like this is. It could be half a bagel and some flat soda from last night. What's important is that we acknowledge. We don't just do it out of rote and then the elements truly have no meaning. We do this with an understanding of what the elements represent. And the body, whatever you have is the body, take that. That represents the literal body of Jesus Christ. Broken, given freely for you to pay the price that we all deserve. And he took that upon himself for you. And if you accept that sacrifice, take the body. The blood of Jesus was shed on the cross so that when Father God looks at you, he doesn't see you through the list of our faults, the list of our sins, the list of things that are wrong with us, the list that the enemy wants to continue adding to on a daily basis. He doesn't see you through those things. He sees you literally through the blood of Christ, which makes you clean and righteous in his eyes. And that's the only way that we would ever attain righteousness. And if you accept that sacrifice, take it. Father, we praise you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Join us in some worship.
Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. 